Hello, plant friends. This is Simon Hill, host of the Plant Proof Podcast. And before we get into this week's special guest and the introduction for the episode, I would like to again thank you so much for all the positive feedback that you have been sending and sharing on social media. The feedback that has come in uh, over the past few weeks after the episode on gut health with Dr. B, episode with Zana Van Dyke on, on leading a conscious life, episode with Frank Cusimano on science and, and making healthy food decisions based on science, the episode with Osher Ginsberg on his story and in particular his battle with mental health, and of course, last week's episode with James Aspie and why he gave up meat and you could too. So once again, thanks so much for what you're sharing. I I truly, truly love seeing all of your feedback. I love seeing where you are when you're listening to the Plant Proof Podcast. So please keep it up. Now, let's get on to this week. Wow, you would have heard me mention clean meat or cellular meat in previous episodes, no doubt. This is an area which is is growing very rapidly and it's it's very, very interesting. And today we sit down with Thomas King. Just wait until you hear this fella. At age 13, he founded the world's highest viewed website on unsustainable palm oil production. He's had this consciousness for our environment and for the animals from a very young age. At age 22, he is now the CEO of Food Frontier, which is a not-for-profit organization in Melbourne, Australia, that has been set up with the aim of helping grow the availability of healthier, more sustainable protein innovations in the Asia-Pacific, including plant-based meat and clean meat. In this podcast, we go over what cellular or clean meat actually is and what it means for the future of animal protein consumption. It's really interesting and sheds a bit of light on this tremendously fascinating and quickly growing space. I hope you enjoy it. Thomas King, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks for having me, Simon. Mate, I am I'm absolutely pumped to have you here today. You're you've you've come on down to Bondi and you know the timing was perfect because I've been I've been reading so much about cellular meat and this, you know, hugely fascinating category or industry that seems to be to be evolving. And I reached out to you and you just happened to be in Sydney. You're are you based in Melbourne or are you based overseas? Based in Melbourne. Travel a lot, but yeah, Melbourne's home. So obviously the listeners, you know, have heard on on my previous podcast, I've mentioned cellular meat and the fact that I myself want to learn more about it and I want to to educate the listeners on what this industry is doing. It sounds like, you know, science fiction <laughs> to an extent. Yeah, right. Um, but it, it, it seems real. It seems real now. There's a number of players, you know, we've seen guys like Richard Branson, Bill Gates, Elon Musk's brother talking about it. They're investing into this space. So let's, let's explore it. And I think a great way to start though is to understand how on earth you ended up as a, a CEO of a company which is sort of pioneering and I guess to an extent pioneering this space in Australia down under. Where did it all start for you? What was, what was life like as a, as a child and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in the outer east of Melbourne in the Dandenong Ranges, which is not a, a bad place to um, spend your childhood. I've uh, always had quite an interest in the natural world and animals and 
ask big questions since I was fairly young, but it wasn't until I was about 13 that I kind of got involved in, I guess, the social impact space. I saw a video of an orangutan in Borneo walking through a logging site, pretty confronting scene and learn about the uh, issue of deforestation for crops like palm oil and the fact that that was in half of all products we were eating. And as kind of a, a you know young person who cared about the world, I felt that this was a huge injustice that needed to be changed. And I was extremely naive, extremely passionate and launched this online campaign to try and educate people about this issue and give them the resources that they need to take action. And it ended up going worldwide and becoming, becoming the highest ranking site on that topic in the world. And that was my entry into the space. So I learned a lot at a very young age. And you, you, were, you were 13. Yeah, 13 going on 14. Well, like, so you, you, you saw this documentary, you, it resonated with you and you're like, I need to make a difference here. How, how did you then, you know, you're 13. How did you, did you go back and speak to your parents and say, I've got to do this? And how did you start that website? And I found a friend who knew about this DIY website builder and he taught me how to use it. So I have to give him a lot of credit. And yeah, that thank God it was redeveloped a couple of times by professionals because it, you know, it was it was pretty basic starting out. But yeah, look, it was it was just this pursuit to try and do what I could as a as a young person in Australia towards this issue that I cared about. But as it happens with these things, you learn about one of the you know big problems in the world, and then you meet that person and go to that rally and go to that conference and speak at this event, and from there my horizon sort of broadened. And for me. It, has been the last eight years a, a journey to, I guess, in, in, address injustice and reduce suffering in the world. It's never been particularly cause specific. I've taken opportunities as they're presented to me, and that's taken me on a, a pretty wild journey working on projects in five continents from kind of conservation to climate. I did a bit in poverty alleviation and then ended up in animal protection. So it was a, a really fantastic journey to be able to work with a whole variety of different people and different issues um, in different parts. But the common theme that I had realized well and truly by you know, the end of that eight years was that there was one common factor underpinning every one of the issues that I had worked across, which was our food system. In particular, a food system that relies on industrial livestock production to produce much of the, the food that we eat. You know, I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with the statistics. World's leading cause of global deforestation mm. and biodiversity loss, you know, contributes more greenhouse gases than the transport sector, and of course, the world leading cause of animal suffering. And so, I figured, you know, what if I want to have the greatest impact that I can? If I want to kind of pursue, I guess, that effective altruism agenda of, you know, directing my time and energy and talents towards whatever's going to have the greatest impact and ripples across all of these areas. This has got to be where I focus. And if we just take one step back, because we're going to, we're going to jump into that and I want to dive deep into what, what's evolved from there. But the, that website, and you were 13, I'm super curious, how did you market that to become such a, a global hit to an extent. I would love to tell you that I had a, a really um, kick-ass strategy for how I did that. Honestly, it was pretty organic. So it was something I started by just sharing with friends and family. And I was that kid at Christmas who wouldn't stop going on about world issues and showing my aunts and uncles videos on my phone from YouTube and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you start to get asked to speak at things and 
as a young person doing cool stuff, you know, I was fortunate enough to get some accolades along the way and that kind of, you know, increases your credibility. And so, yeah, it, it just, it was an issue that more and more people were learning about the kind of the, the, the name and the brand of the platform, I guess, resonated with consumers and it just rise to become the highest ranking site on the internet uh, for that, you know, you pump Crazy. Oil into Google and Crazy. It ranks above Wikipedia. You know, and the information there was just highlighting what what is. Yeah, it was, it was speaking to to the issue, but also providing people with tools and information that will allow them to hopefully have a positive impact towards addressing it. I guess the one theme throughout uh, my eight years working across these different causes has always been behaviour change. So whether it's consumers or decision makers. It's getting people to change their behavior, change their mindsets. And as a result of that, you have a, a positive impact on the world and, and reduce um, their contribution to these problems. And the, you mentioned, you know, the industrialization of food and factory farming. Can you sort of paint a picture, I guess, of what that looks like from a statistics point of view, the resources that are required to do that? Yeah, it's it's... You know, it's, pre- it's pretty shocking. I mean, for me, my entry into that was probably from, you know, an ethical standpoint a- along with the environmental and-, and health factors, but realizing that I was working hard to kind of, you know, re- reduce the suffering of animals over in Asia, yet I hadn't put a single thought into the ones that were on my plate back home and, uh, yeah, read and, 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 and watched resources about um, this space only to learn that yeah, d- depending on which statistics you, a lot of the stats, the most credible stats that are out there around this topic speak to the fact that around a quarter or a third of our land and freshwater supply is currently used for animal agriculture. It contributes more to greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, than all the world's transport combined, all cars, trucks, trains, boats, planes. It, it, you know, Chatham House in the UK said around the uh, 2015 Paris Climate Summit that even if we were to, you know, significantly reduce or cease the burning of fossil fuels, animal agriculture could still push us beyond that two degree warming limit. And so there are huge problems. I mean, you look at our oceans, whether it's, you know, overfishing and uh, the number of fish populations that have now collapsed or the runoff of agriculture into our marine systems and the damage that does in these so-called ocean dead zones uh, that are starved of oxygen, basically. So yeah, it's, it's an incredibly, incredibly damaging uh, industry. And it, it really is another form of energy, right? Food is what fuels us, not our cars. And just like energy, we need to be moving towards more, far more sustainable w- ways of producing it. If we're to feed the world into the future in a way that is healthful and that is within planetary boundaries and reducing you know, this, the unjust suffering of animals. Yeah, precisely. And, and an- another, another part of that resource, I guess, is the amount of water that is used. You know, you see things online. I'm not 100% sure how truthful they all are, but like to make a, a hamburger is X thousand litres of water. Yeah, UN Water says it's around about fifteen thousand liters of water for a single kilogram of beef. Wow! And and I've I've read elsewhere. I think McDonald's sells seventy five hamburgers a second. Yeah, right. So <laughs> if you add up that water, it's it's enormous. Yeah, it, you know, obviously in countries like Australia, 
you know, United States, a lot of kind of Western developed countries, meat consumption is already at a very high level, sits around about 100, 110 kilograms per year per person. But what's even more concerning is that we've got these huge uh, portions of the global population that are coming out of poverty, which is, is a great thing, rising affluence. But with that comes rising protein consumption and an aspiration to eat more meat, particularly across Asia. So, you know, we've got more than half the world's population just sitting north of us with a, an incredibly steep meat consumption trajectory. And so if we're already using so much of the yeah, world's yeah. land and water and, you know, greenhouse gas budget to produce meat, well, what's that going to look like? In How are we going to supply them? Years? Yeah, that is crazy. And, and I'm presuming, so it's off the back of your analysis of all of this that has led you to, to found and be the CEO of Food Frontier. Can you, can you tell us when you, you said you sort of came up with the idea that you needed to start this, this company and what its mission is? Yeah, so I, I went to the States a bit over two years ago um, to speak in an event called Nexus Global in New York. And while I was there, I set up meetings with these food tech companies that I'd started to learn a little bit about back in Australia through you know, the media and Facebook who were basically, you know, the, the, these collections of entrepreneurs and, and innovators, food scientists who were working to recreate meat at the molecular level, either using plant proteins. And I mean, maybe we can talk about that later, but, you know, kind of that next generation of plant-based alternatives that are hyper kind of realistic. Um, Which is like the Beyond Burger. Yeah, Impossible Burger. Foods and yep. those kinds of companies. And then this cohort of, of companies working in a field that's been called cellular agriculture to produce real meat or milk or egg, but from animal cells rather than slaughtering entire animals. And so I was very intrigued by this space. I, I, I met with a few of these companies kind of, you know, in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, taken on tours of their facilities, met their Michelin star chefs and their food scientists, learned about the kind of investment, as you said, Gates, Branson, Google, Yahoo!, you know, Li Ka-shing, BizStone, some of the biggest meat corporations in Northern America have now invested in both these fields of technology. Yeah. I saw Tyson Foods invested yeah. into, was it Beyond Burger or? Yeah, they've made investments both in, yeah. in, in, in both fields. Cargill is, I think, the largest private company in the United States and one of the biggest producers of, of, of animal products, of beef particularly. Um, so these guys are clearly looking at the whole industry and what you're talking about, like how are we going to supply these populations or the F, you know, how are we going to pivot to keep our P&L and balance sheet looking good as demand changes? Yeah. I mean, the reality is anyone who knows anything about making money, doing good in the world or the future of food, at least in the United States, is already behind this space. And so any meat company that's currently producing conventional products would be foolish not to realize that the future of protein is going to have to, in order to feed the global population, be made up of, to some degree, you know, alternatives. And so the question that they're presented with is, well, do we want to be part of that? Do we want to invest early, be ahead of that curve, have skin in the game and diversify our portfolios? Or are we going to try and fight back against it and ultimately lose out in the long term? So anyway, I had met with these companies, sat down with them, learned about this space Came back to Australia feeling hugely buzzed, but 
kind of thinking, am I going to have to move to California if I want to get involved with this or could something be done down here? And the more I started to look into it, the more conversations I had, the more experts I met with, the more I realized that next to nothing is happening in this part of the world. And if we're looking at the Asia Pacific as a whole, arguably it's the most concerning food region. As I said, you know, we've got about 60, 60% of the world's population and a, a big portion of, of those people are going to be increasing their meat consumption. You know, globally, I think about 30, 33 kilograms is the, is the global average. So if people are aiming to what the West is mm. currently consuming, which is over 100, you know, that, that's hugely concerning. And, and, you know, Australia supplies a lot of these Asian, Asian regions, right? Right. So this is what I, you know, having grown up in Australia and realized, I guess, the influence we have within the food sector in our region, that's the question that came to mind. How can we leverage that reputation, that intellectual capital we have in terms of our R&D capabilities to innovate further in this space and our industry infrastructure and capabilities to help be the next hub for this kind of protein innovation, but, but for our region? Because at the moment, most of it's coming out of either America or probably Israel, mm. and little bits and pieces in Europe as well. But yeah, very little happening in this part of the world. And so I think there's a prime opportunity for Australia, you know, along with our neighbours over in New Zealand, to leverage that, that influence we have. We know that the, the Australian-made and New Zealand-made brands have a lot of weight in uh, Asian markets. They're highly sought after. They have that clean, green, quality, trusted reputation. So how can we diversify our sectors to help influence our entire region, not only our domestic markets, was kind of, yeah, what we started to explore. Okay. So you were, you were in America and you were, you were taken to the facilities of these companies that are already, they're already experimenting or they're already making the cellular meat? Yeah. So there, there, there are a handful of companies and, and more popping up all the time that are in this space. Most of them have kind of chosen a particular kind of meat that they want to try and champion. So years ago, they started out with, with beef. Now there's companies like Memphis Meats that have done you know, chicken uh, and duck prototypes. You can look up on YouTube the videos of, of, of their chefs cooking it. There's companies like Finless Foods that are doing seafood. As a scientist who's on our advisory council, a woman named Marie Gibbons, who was working out of Harvard Medical just by herself in a lab doing uh, turkey. So she was That's wild. <laughs> and she was doing a combination, a blended version of plant, plant and, um, and what's been called clean meat. You know, yep. Most people in this space are calling it clean meat. Is, is clean meat the same as cultured meat? Is that the, another name? Yeah. Yeah. So it is cell cultured meat, I guess. But they're, you know, I'd say most of the companies in this space are referring to it as clean meat. And that's both uh, sort of a nod to clean energy because it doesn't have the same adverse environmental impacts. Uh, we're talking about less than 90% of the land, water, and greenhouse gas emissions compared with conventional beef, at least, if we're comparing clean beef with conventional beef. There's been some other names that has, have been suggested as well, names like craft meat, because once this process is scaled, it actually takes place in uh, a facility that looks like a beer brewery, basically. So <laughs> it's highly likely that in you know, 10, 20 years, we'll be able to go down to our local meat brewery and see how our meat is made. And then I uh, jump on a big bus with your friends and go from one to the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yes, there, there's a few different terms, but I would say that clean meat's probably the one that's being used most widely. 
it's it's both that acknowledgement of the environmental benefits, but also it's literally cleaner. A lot of the meat we eat today has bacterial contamination on it, and that's as a result of the slaughter process. So things like E. coli, Campylobacter, this is bacteria that comes from the intestine, basically. So it's pretty gross, but essentially, you know, um, shit goes everywhere um, when when animals are, are, are slaughtered, and there can be contamination on the meat from those that bacteria. Now, if you don't have slaughter involved in producing that product, you don't have that bacteria come in contact with the meat. At the moment, you know, we literally have to cook the shit out of our chicken in order to eat it safely. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's you know, from yeah that perspective as well. Did you physically sort of see the meat in these laboratories getting grown? Is it like in a petri dish or let's, can you paint the picture? Yeah. I mean, like with any new food innovation, it starts in a lab and I, I saw, so I both uh, went and met with these companies in the States also last year, once I'd started my organization, I was part of a, a short documentary with a guy named Professor Mark Post in the Netherlands, who was the first person in the world to produce a uh, hamburger from growing it from cells. And yeah, I've seen the process quite early on. Uh, so it's, but basically what happens is, is, you know, there's, I guess, four main steps you could say. So you start with a sample of cells, a cell line. You've then got a medium, something that you need to feed to the cells. Then there's usually some, some kind of scaffolding in order for the meat to, to grow in the form that you want it. And ultimately that process will occur in what's called a bioreactor, a steel tank basically, which is- Facilitates the reactions. Yeah, yeah. And so the initial sample of cells can be taken from a live animal without having to harm that animal. So we're talking about like a sesame seed size biopsy. Those cells are then fed nutrients. So rather than at the moment, we have an animal in the middle of that equation. So you have- crops or grass or water going into the animal, most of those resources are wasted in the process through things like energy expenditure and development of a skeletal system and there's pollution and animals disease prone and all these problems. And then you get a product at the other end, which is a a far smaller number of calories than what you put in. Whereas with clean meat development, you can feed those nutrients directly to the cells. So it's far more efficient that media traditionally has been blood-based. So in medical applications, we're talking about fields like tissue engineering or stem cell biology. That's what they would typically use. And, and that usually comes from a, a calf, which is a hugely ethically problematic scenario. Now, regardless of the so ethics- when they, So they, they extract the blood, blood serum from the, from the calf? Yes, so it's a, it's, a, it's a practice that, that takes place currently kind of in, in the medical field or it's a, it's a, it's a product that use, is used in the medical field. It's incredibly expensive though. And so even if there weren't ethical issues, it would just be not, it wouldn't be economically viable for companies to use that to, to grow these cells. So is there a, an alternative solution there? So this is what all, pretty much all the companies in this space are working towards. And most of them, at least the ones that, um, that we know well, are looking to plant-based medias. So being able to, you know, find those same nutrients and growth factors and the things that, that you need for those cells to develop. But yeah, doing that without having to be raising animals because that defeats mm. the entire purpose. Really. So that medium is providing the uh, growth factors and, and whatnot that's, that's, I guess, in the blood serum or similar in a plant-based 
serum, call it that. What about like the the macronutrients? Like, do you need to feed it carbohydrates or fat or sugars or you know things like that? Yeah, so there's still a, a fair bit of unknown in these areas, and a lot of the companies that are working on this who think that they're, they're going to be available pretty soon are fairly quiet about the processes the that they're using because you know it's just kind of race to see who can get there first, which is understandable. There is talk of being able to control the nutrient profile a lot more than than what we would be able to with conventional meats. So at the moment, you know, there's omega-3 is algae being fed to sheep to try and produce lamb that's higher in omega-3 fatty acids, for example. So the, it, it's, it's likely, it's not definitive at this point, but it's likely that we will be able to have a superior nutritional profile of these products compared with conventional meat, meaning that we could decrease the number of, I guess, undesirable nutrients like saturated fat in place of omega-3 fats for example. So, yeah. So it sounds like it's, it's in its infancy, but companies are working to, to make it uh, less reliant on, on animals in terms of the blood serum and also looking to, to create the ultimate nutritional profile would be the end result. Yeah. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future, we can basically design our meat in terms of texture, in terms of nutritional profile, and it's going to have a fraction of the environmental impacts. It's not going to have uh, this same bacterial contamination, no hormones, no antibiotics, of course. That's another pretty concerning issue with most of the world's antibiotics currently being fed to farmed animals. We come in contact with that bacteria. This leads to issues around resistance. So it addresses all those main environmental, public health, and animal welfare issues associated with conventional meat. But it still provides consumers with the food that they know and love. And I think that, that that's an important thing to recognize would the whole world be eating a mostly or entirely whole foods plant-based diet tomorrow? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's, it's not going to happen. And we have to recognize that these things take time and that change is difficult, especially when you're talking about change at a systemic level. And meat is complex in terms of what it means to people and different cultures. It, you know, there, there are complex cultural, social, economic factors that are underpinning people's choice to eat meat or their, their desire to eat more of it in places like Asia. And I think we have to recognize that and we can't ignore it. We need to meet people where they're at. And these kinds of alternatives are, in my mind, the highest impact solution to doing that because it means people still can enjoy the food that they, that they want, that they love, that they know, but without those same adverse impacts on their health and the health of the world around them and the health of animals. Such an important point because- you know, sometimes we forget about the cultural aspect of food and, you know, some of these, these cultures, you know, them thinking about the, the factory farming and what's happening, it's so, you know, far away from, you know, what their culture stands for and the food that they eat that, the, you know, this, this new industry is just, you know, skipping. It's almost allowing to skip this whole, I guess, educational section of, of you know, why, why we should reduce meat in our diet and just saying that's going to be so hard on a mass scale to get the whole world to really, really reduce their meat. Let's just give them another option, which is not using anywhere near the, the amount of resources or harming as many animals. Totally. And it's also a, a business alternative. You know, it, it, it is something that investors and industry and corporations and governments can get behind. It is the renewable energy of meat. 
And so I'm hugely excited to see meat corporations investing in this space and diversifying their portfolios. And ultimately, business is going to go wherever they can make most money. And if you can scale this process so that it is eventually cheaper, it requires far less inputs and has less liabilities because currently you know, raising billions of animals for food and having these intensive conditions and feeding them antibiotics and risk of uh, disease epidemics and food poisoning, and it, it, it is a really risky way of producing food. And so business will go with whatever option makes most sense for them. And I think that this is such a great solution to, to offer an alternative for them as well. And I guess talking about risks, if we look at the flip side, if a business owner is listening and wants to explore this area, where are the, the governing bodies and you mentioned like public health and the, the regulatory bodies, where are they in terms of embracing this as a new industry, as a safe and effective solution for, for feeding the masses a, an alternative sort of protein source? Where are they? Are they jumping on board? Are they learning about it? Are they, are they, are they embracing it? Yeah. So in the United States, it's the FDA. Yep. They have made a couple of statements publicly, which seem very positive in terms of the likelihood of them approving it and not really seeing any problems with doing so. Like with any new or, or, or novel food product, it does have to go through a process of approval just to make sure that it is safe for consumption. For us down under, we have an organization called FSANZ for SANS, Food Standards Australia New Zealand. They're one of the main authorities uh, that is involved in food regulation in our region. We uh, have, have had a research fellow, a volunteer um, who's studying law, do a memorandum on clean meat regulation for Australia and New Zealand, what it could look like. Uh, so basically examine our current system, understand what it could involve to try and you know, submit an application for meat grown from cells to be approved for sale and consumption in our region. So that's that's the first piece of work we're aware of that's ever been done for our region in this wow. space. We know that these authorities are, are kind of aware of this space, but it's still, this is not a commercial reality yet anywhere in the world. The most ambitious goal of any company is, is basically in, in what well, they said this year. So within, within a year, they reckon they're going to have product in the market in, in some form in the United States, that could be a restaurant in New York. Do you, do you think these companies, I mean, they're using the stem cell from, from that animal, whether it's from the, the cow or the chicken, can they, can they call it chicken? Can they call it beef? Like what, what's, the, what's the regulations around labels? Yeah, it's interesting you raise that. This is a discussion that's, that's happening in various parts of the world with plant-based products as well. So yeah. currently Milk you know, the Impossible Burger yeah. is you know, referred to as plant-based meat. Yeah, same with, with dairy products. With dairy, if we, if we use that as an example, we've gone from less than 1% of the milk market being made up of plant-based milks probably about 20 years ago to now 10 to 15% of the milk market. And there, have been, there has been some pushback in different parts from the dairy industry and certain um, industry representative bodies, certain lobbies, trying to claim that you know, milk should be exclusive to the fluid that comes out of <laughs> a female yeah. bovine delicious. But there hasn't, there hasn't been success. So in the US, there's been you know, the Dairy Pride Act and, and, and things like that. There's been discussion down here and in New Zealand as well 
it hasn't really gotten anywhere. And you know what? Most of the current plant-based milk brands are owned by dairy companies, which I think is great. Yeah, because they're not going to be at the table having that discussion or putting resources into pushing back against it because they're part of that industry. They're evolving. Um, Exactly, evolution. So I think that um, there has been some pushback, uh, particularly in the US, from what's called the Cattlemen's Association uh, against the use of the term meat for products that haven't come from uh, a slaughtered carcass, essentially. Um, so they're wanting to change the definition of meat so that it is exclusive to their their products. We'll see what happens. Ultimately, clean meat, you know, meat grown from animal cells is meat. It is anatomically identical. It, 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 it's the exact same thing. It's just using it's been, a different process. Yeah, it's been grown outside of the animal's body. Right. And so... Yeah, if we're going to have that discussion, then should peanut butter be called peanut butter? It hasn't got any mm. butter in it. Like, <laughs> I, I think so long as it's truthfully labeled, like no one's going and drinking soy milk at the moment thinking it's soy flavored cow milk. Yeah, um, it's not like they're passing off, you know, trying to pretend to be cow milk. Exactly. It's presenting these, these foods as a familiar option for people because people know what to do with a burger or a sausage, Yeah, you know. But I, I can see from a, a, an animal agricultural point of view that's threatening. No doubt that's why they're creating these groups. They're worried that they're, you know, you just spoke to the, the, the plant-based milk has gone from 1% to 15%. It's threatening their sales. And you mentioned that some of the dairy companies are actually evolving and you know, starting to produce plant-based alternatives. Is there is there an opportunity for those in factory farming to to get involved in cellular agriculture? Absolutely. I mean, we've already seen that happen in the States with players like Tyson and Cargill, you know, some of the biggest meat corporations in Northern America investing significantly in, in this space and their CEOs making statements about this being a, a big part of their priority for moving towards more sustainable production methods which I think is incredibly encouraging. I don't see any reason why food corporations and meat corporations can't get into this space and can't diversify their portfolios, you know, whether it's investing in startups, whether it's conducting internal R&D and developing their own products. I think it's a, it's a smart business move. They don't want to have a Kodak moment. You'd rather be Canon, right? <laughs> I, think, I think the recognition what we need to recognize is that Every industry is going to experience significant disruption over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And when presented with that fact, we have two options, right? You can either look to what the future holds, speak to experts, understand what the trends are and where things are heading and say, we want to be ahead of that curve. We want to invest now and, you know, hedge our bets. Or you can, you can push back against it and try and try and stop that progress from happening, which I don't think is, is going to benefit them in the long term. We've, we've spoken a lot about the, the actual laboratories and the manufacturers who are producing this meat. Where does Food Frontier fit in? So this team that you've created, it's a non-for-profit organization, where does that fit in and what, what are you sort of working on on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis here in Australia? Yeah, so after realizing that there was very little movement happening in our region of the world and that there's huge potential to get stuff happening here. So we're talking about, you know, reputation as, as quality and uh, uh, forward thinking food leaders, a close geographic placement to Asia, 
you know, uh, uh, exceptional R&D capabilities. We have researchers here who are some of the best in the world in fields that this relates to. Melbourne, for example, is one of the top hotspots around the globe for tissue engineering capabilities and regenerative medicine, which is the field necessary for producing meat from cells. It's currently, you know, in, in kind of the medical space with things like skin grafts and tissue engineering and whatnot. But there's no reason to say we couldn't direct more of that talent, more of the best minds that we have into this space to, you know, leverage their expertise for a, a pursuit that could have enormous benefits for humanity and the world. And a government that's hungry for new innovation and new industry, you know, we're seeing the decline of certain industries. And so there's big government incentives on offer for new R&D, for new manufacturing, for collaboration with other countries around the world. And so the question became, how can we leverage all of that? We've got all the ingredients we need down here to become the next hub for this new protein innovation. How can we leverage that to establish an industry? And so Food Frontier came about realizing that we need a middle body that can work across the system to help catalyze this change, work with all main stakeholder groups to facilitate the right connections, provide the right knowledge and information and resources to get this started. And so what that looks like, we, we kind of break the food system up into three parts, which is development, supply, and consumption. So we speak about activating new developments. So that's new innovation, new investment, new research, new startups. Accelerating supply, so taking what already exists, whether that's from other parts of the world or locally, and expanding it within our region's markets. And then advocating consumption. So how can we increase the adoption of these healthy and more sustainable protein options, both plant-based alternatives at the moment, but eventually clean meat once it's on the market, amongst consumers and the outlets that, that provide them. And so we've only been around about 18 months, April, early April 2017, we were established as a nonprofit organization. We do a little bit of consulting as well to kind of diversify our funding, but we're reliant probably 90% on philanthropy at this point. We have developed over that time various targeted programs and initiatives to pull those leaders across the food system and get, get this started. So some examples of that, we are developing publications and, and white papers that will add knowledge to this space, that will get this conversation started and engage relevant stakeholder groups to speak to the opportunity that exists, first and foremost, from an economic standpoint, to invest in this space. We have a food outreach program that basically uh, supplies and gives out free plant-based meat uh, products, little meals at university campuses uh, and starting to expand to shopping centers at the front of grocery stores and festivals. And that's hugely successful because a lot of people have myths and misconceptions about these foods. And of course, we're targeting meat eaters and people who who, who, um, perhaps want to reduce their meat consumption but still eat tasty familiar. What, what, are, what are, you know, the, the average person out there when you sort of bring up this idea of laboratory meat, what, what's their first reaction? I think it, it depends on who you're speaking to. If it's someone who's pretty forward-thinking and excited about new innovation and new technologies, they're really keen on it. There are other people who are hesitant and, and, and want to learn more. I think the biggest problem is that there's just such little awareness and information out there for people about what this stuff is, how it's made, why it's needed and, and beneficial. 
the research that has been done around consumer perception and acceptance really varies depending on what information the people being surveyed are told beforehand and how that is presented to them. But ultimately, if you think about it, people eat meat or eat food in general based on three main factors, first and foremost, which is taste, price, and convenience. So if you can produce a product that is as tasty, price competitive, and convenient for them to access and cook, then I think we're going to get a lot of people embracing these options, let alone the benefits that come with it, right? And being able to reinforce it with the environmental and health and and, and ethical benefits. If you're walking down a supermarket aisle in 15 years and you've got two pieces of chicken, identical, same price, just as tasty, one of them was produced by selectively breeding a hen to grow at three times a natural rate, which sorted away at five weeks of age, crippled by the weight of her own body and was fed antibiotics. So she grew faster and didn't die from disease and is probably covered in fecal contamination. Food Standards Australia in New Zealand says that four out of five portions of raw chicken have Campylobacter on them. Or a piece of chicken that was grown directly from cells and, and fed nutrients that mean that it is as healthy or more healthy, doesn't have the antibiotics, doesn't have the hormones, doesn't have the bacterial contamination and didn't contribute to the suffering of a sentient animal. Mm. Which one do you think people are going to choose? And I mean, people are only becoming more and more conscious of their impact on the rest of their other lives in this world and the planet. So certainly makes sense to me. But the, the second point there that you made was cost and it being comparable, you know, and I've certainly read all sorts of outlandish statements about what it could possibly cost is it going to be a comparable price? Will, will we see a, a, a lab-grown piece of steak or a hamburger that sits on the shelf and is you know, very similar to the standard piece of meat? Absolutely. I don't see any reason why it couldn't eventually be price competitive and then cheaper. There are several hurdles at the moment that companies are still working through. And I would say that scale is definitely one of the biggest and that affects price point, right? As with anything, scale of economy will, will influence what the cost is. And so, yeah, there were, there were headlines in the media you know, years back when Mark Post created the, the, the first cell culture. Was that the $300,000? Yeah, yeah $300,000 hamburger, which, which, you know, the, the first iPhone was like a billion dollars or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because it's out of they, 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 Yeah, they put all this R&D into a single product, um, which of course costs a lot. Did he eat um, that? Uh, <laughs> on TV, they yeah. had, uh, yeah, they had a, a few experts and a chef and uh, try it on, on, on TV in the Netherlands. And the first version, you know, was, didn't have much kind of fat. Like it was a, a lot of, it was mainly kind of muscle cells. And so, yeah, the taste wasn't quite there, but it's come a long way in a few years. And the price point as well has fallen significantly. And so there's one company now that says it's, it's, it's down to under $100. So I, I think once it's produced at a certain scale, absolutely it can be price competitive and eventually cheaper because you're not yeah, so having that's a- to use so many resources. I mean, the meat we eat today is artificially cheap. Like it doesn't count all those negative externalities. And also there's regions of the world where because of levy systems, you know, subsidies, meat is a hell of a lot cheaper than it otherwise would because you know, the, the government or taxpayers mm-hmm. are subsidizing the grain that needs to be fed to all those animals and things like that. But I guess that has to an extent set the 
general expectation, expectation totally. of, of what this type of food, regardless of where it's come from, should cost. And I think it'll be important, particularly for you know families that are very conscious of their weekly spend, to see this sort of industry take off. It will need to be comparable, no doubt. Totally. And, and those regions of the world where the, you know, there's still people living on a very small amount of income. And so I, I, I think price is, is imperative and it will start out being more expensive. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if, if it's a little bit more expensive, it's a little bit more exclusive, it's seen as a better option. And then the price won't fall. You know, it's like the the Tesla model, right? You yeah. start with sexy, exciting, exclusive cars and then you produce for the masses. Yeah. But hopefully we can get that price point down as soon as possible. And have you spoken with any of the sort of larger chains that would be selling meat in Australia, like the, the McDonald's or the Hungry Jacks or, you know, what, what are these guys thinking of the space or are they, are they watching it and thinking, oh, when it becomes affordable, we'll, we'll look into it? I think that plant-based alternatives are probably what's starting to get on the radar of major food manufacturers and outlets and, and, and retail chains. And that's a big focus for us at the moment, just because there are great comparable products that are, that are becoming available and we're supporting the market entry of some of those American companies at the moment. And so as one example, you know, we, uh, we've worked with, um, with Woolworths. They released not even a couple of months ago, a plant-based mince product in the meat section of their stores nationwide. And that was the first time that had ever been done in Australian grocery history. You know, in the US, a couple of years ago, it happened with the Beyond Burger being placed in the meat section. And what that means is it, it opens up that option to mainstream consumers. It's no longer a niche. It's no longer hidden in some section of the supermarket that most people don't go to. It is where people buy their burgers or their sausages or their results or their mints. And so that product, you know, we, we helped a little bit with promotion on Facebook, you know, did, did some, um, some really basic kind of well-crafted pieces of communications and shared them around. Our, our post announcing that reached 300,000 people organically, yeah, wow. thousands of comments and shares. The product sold out pretty much nationwide or in the majority of stores nationwide within a number of days. Woolworths in their history have never had a response to a product like that. And so th- they've realized that, you know, there's huge demand in this space. And when you, when, when you offer a really tasty quality next generation meat alternative in the, at the right price point in the right place of the supermarket, that people will embrace it. And so I think food corporations are definitely starting to take this place more seriously. You know, we've had conversations with, you know, family run sausage manufacturers have been doing this for decades and suddenly want to enter the plant-based sausage space, you know? Yeah, wow. Um, which is it's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, to be able to to work with these people, um, people working <laughs> with the guy at the moment who's a beef farmer as well as, you know, an entrepreneur who who um is helping push these products. So I I, I think um still there's quite low awareness, uh, especially kind of in the food service space, so restaurant chains and, and whatnot. And we're, we're working on that front to try and promote uh, diversification of offerings there, you know, Mexican chains and, and, and whatnot, offering plant-based meat. I, I think a lot of them still see it as, you, you know, we've got a bean burrito or we've got a garden salad, you know, we're servicing that like niche vegetarian market and they don't realize that, well, A, a lot of people who are going vegetarian or vegan or just reducing their meat consumption you know, don't 
don't do it because they don't like the taste of meat. Exactly. You know, yeah. garden salad so is not a meal for me. Like, <laughs> and I've been um, meat free for years. And so by offering these options, they can, they can satisfy a, a lot of people in that segment, but also open it up as an option for their mainstream customers. So, so these plant-based sort of meat alternative companies, the ones that you've worked with that you're bringing in from overseas, and we, we've heard about Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger. What, what's different to them about, I guess, the standard sort of vegetarian or vegan, you know, burger that's been in the frozen section of the supermarket for years? And, you know, what are they made of? Yeah, so we've seen over the last kind of five, not even 10 years, this new cohort of companies that are really innovating in this space and exploring beyond the standard ingredients and processes that have been used for, you know, four decades to produce meat alternatives. It's not to say that there aren't some some decent uh, traditional meat alternatives out there, but let's be honest, a lot of them are, are, are not great, or at least they don't appeal to the mainstream meat eater. And I think that's what we need to be aiming towards. And so these companies ha- have basically asked the question, what makes meat meat? What makes it smell, sizzle, look, taste like meat? And how can we borrow different elements from particular plant species to recreate that experience at equal or, or, or higher nutritional value and without, of course, the same impacts of conventional meat. And so there are companies that have, have looked at uh, you know, using different kinds of pea or you know, ver- various different uh, species and, and, and ingredients to offer a product that is far more comparable to conventional meat in, 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 in all those ways. And so a company like Impossible Foods uses the principles of neuroscience, essentially. They have people there that, that examine their entire role is to figure out what is, you know, what are the different scents and replicate. That, that make up meat, what it makes it smell like meat. Yeah. And then cool, what, you know, what is there within the plant kingdom that we could look to and borrow elements from to recreate that experience? And so, look, they're usually a, a combination of proteins from, you know, legumes and, and grains some particular kind of fat. So different companies are using different types. Impossible foods use coconut fat because it has a very similar profile to beef fat. Impossible foods also use an ingredient called heme. Yeah, I've heard um, about that. Which is traditionally found in, in, in mammalian blood, but it also is in certain plant species. And so they started by taking that from the roots of certain crops and adding that, which is, is essentially what in meat gives it that pink, medium rare, bloody, juicy kind of it's element. Like plant and, blood. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so that's, that's what they advertise as their, their secret source. You know, each company is um, going about it a different way. And, and we have you know, one here uh, down under over in New Zealand called Sunfed Meats. They're using a, a particular kind of pea to produce mm-hmm. their chicken-free chicken. And- yeah, it's, it's a way for people to in, enjoy a burger or a meatball or, or what have you, but made from plants. There's going to be some crazy stuff on the shelves in the next <laughs> five years, isn't there? I can feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, this is really just in its infancy. I mean, we get excited about the Impossible Burger, but yeah. this space is really just in its infancy. We've explored about 8% of the plant kingdom for protein. So the potential for innovation mm. is huge. And ultimately, you know, people, I think these products are, are important because most people don't eat meat because of how it's produced. You know, a lot of people eat it in spite of how it's produced. They don't want to think about the, the processes or the impact. 
they eat it again because of the taste, price, convenience, the familiarity. It's what they know, and so it's 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 giving them that, but in a in a, a better option, making the good choice the easy choice, if you like. And and the the Impossible Burger actually had that. I've had it a couple of times now, but I had it first in in LA at a place called Crossroads. I'm not sure oh, if yeah. you've heard of it. Yeah, Crossroads is great. We went there for brunch, I think, on Saturday, and I believe I'm not sure whether they still do this, but they. They only made available 100 patties every Saturday for brunch. And you've got to get in there quick and make sure it's, it's one per person maximum. And it is sensational. I went with a couple of friends who, who are not vegan. And it was just mind-blowing how real the entire experience was. So yeah, it, there was one company we were working with and they did uh, this focus group in the States. And they, they basically got people to rate uh, these five different kinds of buns you know, for these burgers. And at the end, they said to people, you know, oh, and what did you think of the patties? And people were like, yeah, great, fantastic. Yeah, no, no complaints. Not one person didn't realize it was made from plants. They all thought it was conventional meat. <laughs> and so it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, this is part of uh, the purpose of our food outreach program at, at unis and, and whatnot is to get these options out to thousands of people in a way that, you know, they can have that positive first mm-hmm. touch point. People there that can answer the FAQs that come their way. There's also a contact capture point, meaning that they, you know, students scan a QR code and they get linked with a Facebook bot that they can ask questions about where it's available and and things like that. And we're building this base of thousands of interested consumers. So yeah, I I think this is something that has huge potential. So cool, man. I'm super inspired by what you're doing. And if if anyone wants to reach out to you because they've been listening and they're just fascinated by whether it's the science fiction aspect of cellular meat or plant-based meat alternatives, how can they get in touch with you or Food Frontier? So our website is foodfrontier.org. Our email address, our Facebook is all linked through there. We, as I said, have various different programs. We work with a bunch of research fellows and, and just professionals and students who want to volunteer their time. So always, always uh, want to embrace people's support in that respect. If someone's you know in business or in the food industry, please reach out and, and we're, we're happy to chat. We do research and, and starting to do more consulting for different groups. But we also rely largely on philanthropy to power our work. And so uh, we, yeah, half my role is, is trying to raise money to do all, all of this exciting stuff. And so if people want to support us that way, uh, they can as well. Cool. Well, mate, I, uh, I actually look forward to having you back on the show in a couple of years, hopefully when... The landscape has changed and we can talk about everything that's evolved and where where we're up to at that stage with cellular meat. So once again, thank you very much for making yourself available. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. Hey guys, Simon here. Really hope you enjoyed that episode with Thomas and got a good understanding of what cellular meat is, why this industry has evolved and what the future for cellular meat may look like. I'd like to close out this episode with a few comments. I know you may be thinking, Simon, is cellular meat vegan and would you eat it? This is a very individual and complex question. If I was vegan purely for environmental and animal cruelty reasons, then yes, I probably would eat it. However, I also care about my health and would need to see the nutritional composition of the food before I made a decision as to whether or not I would add it into my diet. The caveat here is that we still don't know enough about the resources, animal cruelty and health aspects of this alternative food option And until the product hits the shelves and we are given independent verified information, I will hold back my decision. I hope that makes that clear. Alrighty, 
Go and fuel that space suit of yours with some delicious plants. See you in the next episode.